millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History. Hello, Dan. Hello, Bernie. I'm so excited. Because this time you have done some amazing research and I don't know anything about it yet. Well, thank you. This, we'll have some fun with it. I, I did do a lot of research on this, but I didn't prepare a script like we sometimes do. So I think um, I think this is going to be good. I'm actually, I've been excited about this for a long time. And it, honestly, I'm a little nervous because this information is so good. I really want to make sure that I get it out as best I can to everybody. So we're going to talk today about the Assyrian Intelligence Services. And my main source for this is a book by um, Peter Dubovsky, and it's called Hezekiah and the Assyrian Spies. But it's a very scholarly book, and it's this guy breaks down all these tablets, and they're not, you know, you're, they're not the king's annals and things like that. There are these like little messages and tablets that it's, it really shows how they, how the intelligence services uh, of of a serial work. So kind of jump into this. Um, so in this period, in this, what we're talking about here too, is really a very small window. It's even in our last episode, Dan said, maybe the empire got too big. This is kind of the the era that we're talking about. Cause in the, in the first half, like in the ninth century, the first half of the eighth century, it's most scholars will agree that the Assyrian military was kind of like raids, capturing people, things like that. And it wasn't really until um, TP3, he transformed the policy. They called it the the down-the-line approach. That's what um, Seymour Parpola calls it. He's another great Assyriologist. Um, The strategy was they wanted to expand the core area systematically by reducing these little independent countries and even the vassal countries to actual provinces directly controlled by the government. And... um, 
there was a there was like a standardized procedure, just like everything else seems they do, right? That we found out there was a massive deportation. They'd install an Assyrian governor. They'd construct Assyrian garrisons and forts, and then. Now, there was always the threat of rebellion, though, with these kind of things. So they required an efficient intelligence network to keep, them, you know, keep a lid on this. And TP3 was like the main guy that really ramped this up. I mean, intelligence has like been around, I think, since there's been people. Intelligence is kind of like just knowing what's going on around you. But then as a government doing it, you know, as a country or empire... These, the Syrians did it more systematically and better than the other people around them and, you know, kind of prior to them. It must have been around since the invention of agriculture. Absolutely. Because then you were like, how much how much stuff is in that village over there and how well defended is it? That's intelligence you have to have if you want to take their stuff. Exactly. There's actually evidence of from like it's like 8,000 BC of a watchtower in the Levant, like you know around Jericho, and even Jericho had walls 18,000 BC, you know. So for sure, but it was just like how. So that would be let's just say, you know, you're the strong man or the king or the ruler of a village. How how much you systemize that intelligence and how much importance you put on it, I I think you're going to see you made a big difference. And I really think now this is why. The, Assyri- the Neo-Assyrian Empire actually happened. This is why it got to how it got to. I mean, you know, we try to study the the battle plans and like, how come the Assyrians always won these battles? How come they all, you know, they didn't win, didn't lose that much? And they, we don't really think of like a Alexander the Great that he had these great strategies and you know, overwhelming battles that they were, they were overwhelming odds that they defeated. They just sort of always won. But that's because, you know, if you ever read the Ancient Art of War, it's a, China, and it's actually supposedly written later than this our period here. Much later, like right, the third century BC, right? Right. That's when they think it was written, and you know about the warring periods. But yeah, the three, right, the three. Oh, sorry, he he died in four ninety six BC. I think they think it was written around the three or the two and three hundreds, actually. But you know how it was kind of like Sun Tzu, though he lived back then. But he and today the intelligence services all have to read that book. And he, his, one of the main things he always said was, don't go to war unless you know you can win. Right? Like, you know, you got to know what's going to happen um, as best as you can, because there's so many things that could go wrong. That's a very good idea. Yeah. But, you know, not everybody does that. I, I really always say, like, what were these people thinking? And they went against the Assyrians, and they always lose. Because I don't think they had an organized intelligence system the way the Assyrians did. And... I think they're best to de- define intelligence, right? So intelligence could be like the way you use intelligence, like information. But, you know, intelligence is also, well, here's the definition of it. Intelligence refers to information relevant to a government's formulation, formulation and implementation of policy to further its national security interests and to deal with threats from actual or potential adversaries. That's intelligence, like the information. As an activity, intelligence involves the collection and analysis of intelligence information. And then the term intelligence could also refer to an organization that carries out these activities. So, first of all, the Assyrians didn't have an actual, like, CIA or KGB, and they didn't have a, like, you're the intelligence agency. I'm so disappointed. (laughs) I wanted the Assyrian 
CIA. Well, the kind of the whole thing was the CIA, like the king and 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 his the crown prince and his those guys kind of were the CIA. That was the real important um, part of their military function, right? Like they had, were had to be the guy in charge. The one somebody had to be in charge. You can't tell everybody everything, you know. It's secretive. So that's kind of was their main role. Now I'm saying like we have a lot of information on, especially Sargon and Sennacherib. And when Sennacherib was the crown prince, he was kind of like your spy chief. And Sargon, I think Sargon was probably TP3's, um, you know, he was his guy. Even though Shalmaneser and, you know, there's that whole, is he a son? Did he overthrow him? Yes. So Sargon was always out on campaign because he knew he had Sennacherib to take care of the intelligence business in the back and also, the, you know, running the government. And poor, poor Sennacherib just wants to build things. He just wanted to build things. But I'm sure he was a... And he liked his wife, too. But so then in in the, um, the task of an intelligence... So modern... So I was actually did some reading and stuff, and I watched some information on um, modern intelligence agencies, and then even the history of intelligence. There's this guy who wrote this huge book on the history of intelligence. I searched Assyria in it. One word. Nothing. <laughs> so it's... But... Um, this book, the Hezekiah and the Syrian Spies by Dubovsky, he really goes into depth. So I, I really recommend if you um, like the podcast, this episode, if you like, check it out because there's a lot of detail in it and it's impossible for me to get, go through every little thing that happens. But um, he explains that there's uh, the intelligence services do different things besides just gather intelligence. They also are involved in like psychological operations and things like that. So, and the Assyrians were masters of it all. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, what I think I'm going to do is we'll talk about, I'll tell you about a couple of case studies and to show how, how they work. I think it's a good way. And then the book has tons of them. Very, very interesting stuff. And so, like the first one is the Siege of Jerusalem. There's so much. Um, to shows how these uh, their services work just by that. So I'm going to actually go to 2 Kings 18, right? I'm not going to read this whole thing, but you'll, you'll you'll see what I'm saying. If you if you remember um the Rob Shaka, right? He came outside the walls of Jerusalem and he made this speech. Yes. So it sounds like oh that's silly, it probably didn't happen. Now, word for word it probably didn't happen, but there's a good chance that something like this either did happen there but it definitely happened in other places. We even have records of it in Babylonia. If you remember, Sargon just marched right into Babylonia. Didn't even have to really shoot a, you know, fire an arrow. Yes. So this is kind of the way they would do it. So here I'll just. So here's two kings, eighteen. So remember when the Rab Shaka comes out and he he's talking to them. So he says he brings a message. Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it, such as the king of Egypt to all who depend on him. So now, that just sounds like words, right? But if you break that down and you see that, they know that they're talk that they so the Assyrians know that they do not have enough um, 
men to fight in a war because they just conquered all the rest of their cities, right? They're saying they know that you're trying to um, depend on Egypt, and they know Egypt isn't going to really help them. So that means just right there that they have a whole bunch of people out gathering intelligence to know this stuff. That on just that one sentence, a couple sentences. So then he continues, but if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem. So I mean, there you go again. They know what's happening in this, in you know, the state of Judah. They know that there's people that don't obviously don't aren't very happy about them destroying their religious spots and telling them that they have to worship in Jerusalem. And the way that they conquered, uh, that they moved into Babylon at that time, you know, Sargon did was by conspiring with the temples. So it was somebody that you know, some temples probably didn't like that they knocked the Asherah poles down. So here's a great example of the information that they had that they told them that they had the information, and the, and the psychological you know, effects of you know, going outside the, and speaking to them in Hebrew. And here, just one more part of it. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you were depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? So there again, he knows that, here, I'll give you 2,000 horses. You don't even have 2,000 soldiers. And they know it because they have good spies. <laughs> uh-huh. Right? Yeah. So I, I find that very interesting. I mean, you you hear the... And, and I feel after studying this more, I'm like, wow, that maybe some guy really did yell outside the walls of uh, Jerusalem that day. I mean, that's pretty, um, you know, historically... We don't have any record besides this from the Bible that that was said, but we have these other records that they did things like this at other cities. Hmm. Right? I would like more examples. All right. I'm going to do this other example. And this is on the um, border of, you know, so remember when we were just talking on our last episode about where the Assyrian heartland is, and it butts up against Urartu and TP3. Uh, no, before them, remember, if you recall, Urartu, when did, no, this is before I was in the podcast, but Urartu started get, expanding, I believe, in, before Tiglis Pileser III, right? He sort of, he sort of stopped it. Yes. So then he built a lot of forts along there, and this, during the time of Sargon, there were some, just a whole bunch of different incidents. So here these examples will show kind of how the, the information got to them. So you had your governors. And the governors were required to send, you know, information back to the kings. So on this this area where Urartu is kind of bumping up against the, you know, the Syrian heartland, it's it's there's mountains there, the rivers are there, there's tributaries of the rivers, and there's also lots of lumber. And the Assyrians would bring the lumber down, um, you know, they would put them on these rafts and send them down the river. And... You get the sense that there's these this little small scale like engagements just happening all the time. So the one there's three governors on the Assyrian side and there's multiple governors on the Urartu side. And the Assyrians have forts along the river. Okay, so here's some reports that we have from um, the Urartan border, right? So this area was ripe with trees and the Assyrians need that needed the trees. And we could talk more about the trees after, but 
So the main task of the Assyrian officials was to monitor the Urartan frontier and warn the court about any impending insurrections or stuff like that. And there's this one, it's called the Palua Crisis. So a report on this Palua Crisis has been preserved on, a, and these, on some tablets. And some of them are, they're not all 100% complete, but we get enough from them. And this, one, this guy's name is Asipa. So Asipa's dispatch, the third man of the king, my lord, who came, told me, your guard should be strong. The guard is very strong. Three governors in Palula and another three in Denebi are gathered with pack animals opposite us. We are keeping watch opposite them. All the people are inside fortified palaces. The oxen and sheep are on this side of the river. We are standing by and keeping watch. So, according to this report, it's telling them about the tension on the border, right? And the king was aware of this escalating tension. So he told Asipa just to keep a close eye on events. So he watched carefully. He kept providing the court with um, intelligence. And he had some more intelligence for him here. Six Urartan governors with pack animals took their position along the banks of the Murat. So he communicated this intelligence on the rank, the number, and the location of all the military commanders, right? Who they were. Um, the latest information provided by this Asapa was the account of his defensive countermeasures. So he moved his people into the fortified palaces and he moved his domestic animals to the other side of the river. Okay. So he strengthens his guard, he takes advantage of the situation, and then he asks the king to supply him another 500 men from another province to supply his guard. And that was, that's you know, an example of a, a Syrian intelligence report. But what happened is Sargon, and they, they knew about this, but it wasn't that big of a deal. Like, so they actually didn't send the 500 men, but there was a lot of stuff going on um, battle-wise, but they couldn't spare anything. So you also get these other reports where they're like, well, the one guy says to the guy, one um, governor sends the other one something like, I hope you are well, you know, I hope everything is well. And he sends him back. I hope you hope everything is well. You must be happy, you know, being uh, safe in your house because there's troops all over the place here and they're attacking us. So there was all these battles going on and they were constantly, you know, letting the king know um, what's happening. But he doesn't always have somebody to send in the army, you know, today. So I get the sense from these all these different reports that there was all these fires just going on all outside the around the empire, and that's how the king had to decide which his annual campaign was going to be. Like, do I have to go to Elam this year? Do I have to go to you know Babylon now? Where do I have to go, I have to, go to Jerusalem? Who's rebelling? And you can only pick one a year, I guess. So then you needed the intelligence services to have these psychological operations, know what's going on, know where the worst um, fires are going to be, and then. Like, when you do go fight somebody, that's why I think they slaughtered the hell out of them, because then they could use those psychological operations, you know, so like, because you can't fight 13 wars at a time, you know, if you have 13 different, you know, areas that are inflamed, so to speak. We, we do we know which year this was? This was, these are during the time of Sargon, so it's like 708, um, 711, like this, this time period. Okay. Um, it's when Sargon was king. I wonder what the Urartans were up to. So the Urartans, they um, had built a highway and connected all their peripheries with Lake Van. So I remember, too, they said that highway had, um, you know, torches. So if the Syrians came, they light one torch, they'd see it, and then they, that's how they could you know, mobilize. It, so they indicated that the Urartans were able to um, mobilize when the Assyrians, every time the Assyrians, you know, tried to fight back. So it was a really um, contested... 
contested uh, border. And it's, you know, today we have nuclear weapons, so you can't have these you know, border skirmishes. But it, I got the appearance that they're pretty much fighting all the time, you know? Yes. It's a very ambitious from Urartu. They are so good at copying Assyrian stuff. Yeah. There's even, they even have some. It's very limited, but they'll, they'll have some. He could kind of extrapolate, too, that they know what the... Because the Urartans obviously have some spies and that kind of thing, too. Because, you know, that's what you have. You have actual spies out in the field. Those are like scouts. And then you have, you know, your, your provincial governor. He gets the information. Or, uh, and he sends it to the um, king. Also, then you have your vassal kings, and they provide information, and they send it to the governor, and then he sends it to the king, or to Sennacherib, who then sends a, a dispatch to the king. It's very like like the CIA, but they just don't call it that. Is it possible this, this Russian border trouble is before 715 BC? It, during, yes, around 715. Uh, Because um, in, in 715, uh, Sargon decides to attack millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me get your personalized plan today at noom.com real noom user compensated to provide their story In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Kurator for real. That um, would be eventually he got sick of it. Yes, and also the he probably knew about the Rorters, uh, the Rorchan trouble with the Cimmerians. He probably did. And, you know, they don't mention anything about that in, in this in Dubovsky's book. doesn't say anything about the Cimmerians in that but. He obviously did know. I mean, they um, they also made their vassal kings like they would sometimes lie. So they would. That's why they would. When three people or four people would give the reports, they would have to like say, "Oh, this guy's lying now." That's how they know. They would say these things like, "Oh, this guy was turned out. He was, you know, lying to me, and that's why he was. In, you know, they went and he disappeared or whatever." It's relations between Assyria. And Urartu, they alternated between standoffs in which both parties respected each other's territory and they right into overt armed conflicts, such as this, um, there's a Palua crisis and a Arda crisis. So the main task of the Assyrian officials was to monitor the frontier and warn the imperial court about any, any insurrections. So a report on the Palua crisis has been preserved in the form of this guy, 
Asipa's dispatch, the third man of the king. My lord, who came, told me, Your guard should be strong. The guard is very strong. Three governors in Padua and another three in another province are gathered with pack animals opposite us. We are keeping watch opposite them. All the people are inside fortified palaces. The oxen and the sheep are on this side of the river. We're standing by and keeping watch. So according to these lines, this report is only one among many reports informing the court about the tension on the border. The king was already aware of the escalating tension, and he just ordered him to stay at this Asipa guy to keep a close eye on events. So watching carefully, he provided the royal court with the following intelligence. Six Urartan governors with pack animals took their position along the banks of the Murat. So thus he communicated on the intelligence, the rank, the number, and the location of the Urartan military commanders and on the combatant corps of the Urartan troops. So like from the history of intelligence, this like showing that this is what intelligence services do. Like if you were talking about a rep- an intelligence report, you know, from the CIA, it would be sort of structured like this. So... He, furthermore, he told him what he did. He strengthened his guard, and he took advantage of the situation, so he asked the king to send him another 500 men. And then there's the heart of crisis. There's three reports relating a similar escalation in tension in Harda. And this came from the governor of Amidi. His name is Lipfor Bell. That usually means lord, so he's like, you know, I'm like a magnet. Information about this crisis was acquired from two sources, uh, the an- a diplomatic envoy and some spies. So you can sketch it out as, as follows. Um, the Urartans made a foray into the territory under Assyrian control and captured some border fortresses. And this, you know, raid was more like a scouting foray, was organized under um, the Urartan governor and his deputy um, opposite of the Amidi province. So... The, Amar, the, the city of Harda became the center in which Urartan troops were assembled, and then the Urartan frontier was closely watched. Um, as for the foray, it was not a simple border cross. So Lip Bell reported that, quote, The levied Urartan troops are positioned town by town in battle array as far as Turaspa. The mobilization was ordered by the Urartan king himself. As to the work I ordered you the governor of Harda to do, don't do it. Feed your horses until I send you a messenger. So this interruption of assigned work, it, it constitutes a clear warning that attack could shortly befall the Assyrians. And it was actually archaeologists have um, confirmed this, this little story here. And so, and like I said before, I think we mentioned that the, the Herartans had a highway um, Sometime in the 700s, they built this long highway uh, to connect the Lake Van region, and it's today. It's still um, it's still there. So wow, yeah, it's uh, it goes through 3,000 high mountains. It's 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 like on the border of Turkey and um, you know Iraq. Hold on now. <sighs> <laughs> I'm very curious which year this is, but I think it's before 715. Yeah, well, I'm going to find it before. We'll make sure I squeeze it in there. So for the most part, this high, ancient highway follows the modern highway. Um, the, there's bridges and stuff, and it's an amazing highway. So 
They positioned, so thus by them positioning the troops town by town in a battle array, and that most likely meant the mobilization of all the forts, the fortresses, all the fortified cities along this highway, um, connected all the way to their to their king. So this shows you they how their they did their intelligence. You know, they had these scouting stations all along this highway. So when these road stations, when they're put on high alert, that assured fast communication um, in case they um, the Assyrians decide to retaliate. So on the basis of what we know, the Assyrians did not retaliate, but they just re- limited their response to some negotiations and strengthening their guards. So this Lifor Bell, he was ordered to send his messengers to talk to the Iran government for violating the treaty. He says, why do you capture our forts while we are at peace? Good question. Yeah. So Lifor Bell was ordered to send his messengers to say to the Iran government, you know, why are you violating the Assyrian treaty? Why do you capture our forts. Apparently, the Iran government just gave an arrogant answer, which is lost. But, you know, the, the records say that he gave an arrogant answer. So this guy's mission failed. But this shows you again how the governor's mission was to keep information to the king on what's going on in the border. It was also his mission to sort of act as a, you know, diplomat and go and try to, you know, diffuse the situation. So in this condition, this situation, you know, the Urartans kind of got the best of the Assyrians. 707. Wow. The abundance, abundant intelligence reports covering the situation in this transitional area are preserved in the correspondence of four Assyrian officials. Lipfor Bell, the government of Amidi, who was in office in 705 BC, Asher Durbla, the governor of Masinu, and two officials of Tuscan, Asipa and Sa Asher Dubu, after having been the governor of Tushan in 707. Okay. So that's very late in Sargon's reign. Yeah, yeah, right before he died. I hope that I just get the sense that there was a lot of stuff happening on all these borders that the Assyrians were not loved. They were like really pissed a lot of people off. They were always trying <laughs> to rebel from them, especially when you come in, you know, skin a whole bunch of people and cut down their cities and capture your women and children. I imagine that makes you unloved. They were constantly trying to put these fires out with this kind of stuff. But I think that we have to remark on the timing of uh, Sargon's great attack against the Rotor in 715 because he seems to have perfect intelligence at the time. He knows absolutely the Sumerians are invading Rotor and the Manians are rebelling because he beat them up the year before yes. and told them to rebel and they are against the Rotor. Yes. So while these both these things are going on, he attacks and that seems to be an indication that his intelligence is pretty good. Yeah. You know, something else about intelligence services is, and, and I learned this from, you know, some of my studying about just in general. Um, I think, and I've always thought this, I think they, they're so secret that after a couple of generations, they forget. Like, they don't really tell the next generation what exactly to do. Yeah. Because you have, like, Tiglis Pileser and Sargon and then Sennacherib. And then by the time we get to Ashurbanipal, he wasn't really supposed to be the emperor. So maybe he didn't get all the information. And then, you know, he was a good warrior, I guess. But then after him, kind of fell apart. Problem with secrecy. Exactly. Isn't that crazy? I have some, I think about, like, on the X-Files, the smoking man. Like, you know, like, all the information's gone. Whatever maybe those people knew, if there was such a thing. <laughs> you know? I also remember Sargon's daughter, who kept writing intelligence reports to him. Really? Now, that didn't come up in my studies. That's interesting. He married his daughter to some 
Borderland King, and then he got reports from her. Uh, so I do, um, I do recommend this book for anyone who's really interested in taking a deep dive because there's so many different case studies in her, but it's very, it is scholarly. But if you if you read through it, you can kind of get the idea. So it's very difficult to explain each situation, at least for me. I bet there's more coming out from all these uh, clay tablets that haven't been read yet. I'm sure. I'm sure. And it's, I mean, I, I tell you, I read a paragraph one time and I thought that paragraph would have taken me a day to write that. I mean, you have to reference every piece of a tablet. My goodness. I, I, I appreciate the scholars who do this work. That's for sure. Do we have more information on spies? Yeah, here's a little spy information here. This is more of like a more of a like how about a covert operation? Oh, there was this guy whose name we won't go into a whole backstory, but this guy's name is Lutu, right? And he was, it was an area that the Syrians, the their king, this area, their king decided to become a vassal king, but his brother Lutu didn't want to become. A, he wasn't good with that, so. Um, to pacify this guy. So he kind of rebelled, right? And he got some horsemen together and stuff. So to rebel, to pacify this guy, they orchestrated this um, covert action. They kidnapped his son. <laughs> okay. And they took him and then they they moved him. Like they tr- secretly transferred him. They got him over a mountain pass and they took him to Kar Sarukan. And it was all performed according to plan. And so once his son was under guard in the under the walls, then the court told the governor of that area to write an angry letter voicing the king's strong disapproval of Lutu's behavior. So having his son in their hands, the Assyrians could dictate their terms. So, unfortunately, that's all we have. We don't know exactly what happened because the tablet is broken, but I thought that was another cool story. Yeah, he probably kept tabs on his son and um, were surprised to find him missing. (laughs) Like, where is he? Right? So, then... um, they, they can also find out, you know, some... There's another guy, his name was Aspabera, and his brother was Lutu, right? So he was supposed to be fighting against his brother, but it turns out that his brother, they knew, only had 20 cavalrymen, but there was another 80 cavalrymen in this certain, you know, group that was, you know, making trouble. And Asp- this Aspabera guy, he was supposedly a vassal, so he sent to the... To the um, he sent a letter back to the actually to the king of Urartu saying, "No, no, I'm an I'm an I'm an Assyrian, you know, I'm loyal to the Assyrian king. Sorry, but he actually did give some of his troops to his brother. But they were he tried to disguise them. But because of one of their spies knew, they were able to give that information to the king, and they they warned the court about his that he's you know a duplicitous. He's basically not doing what he says. Good intelligence work. Yeah." So they made clear. So he turned from being a pro-Assyrian vassal who was secretly plotting all along. <laughs> Interesting, right? So they really, I, I, they really had their spies all around. Do we have more spy stories? The only other psy, there is a psy, another psyops. You could, well, we sort of mentioned it before, but the way that they conquered Babylon, the way Sargon got into Babylon. I mean, Sennacherib had to siege Babylon, but Sennacherib, he really. Um, worked with inside the temple people. He found out who was against what. You, you mean Sargon? Yes, yeah, Sargon. Yes, you said Sennacherib. Oh, I said Sennacherib. Yeah, Sargon. Yeah, Sennacherib didn't do it the right way. Um, Sargon worked with the... With the it, there, there's a damaged tablet that an intelligence agent says, a citizen of Babylon, in quotes, provided the Assyrian court with some information about, the, um, about what was going on in Babylon and about the king of Elam. So at the time that he... 
Sargon walked into Babylon, just like Cyrus walked into Babylon and Alexander the Great walked in. He knew that there was trouble going on in the temple. He knew he utilized it so that he can get the doors open. And he also knew where the Elamite army was so that he was able to, you know, do that operation. Not get caught with his pants down, you know, and land in front of the, be outside of Babylon. And then the Elamite army comes and get him. I mean, you know what, we, what I said before about the generational thing? I mean, just think about the, I mean, the massive intelligence failure of the Medes and the Babylonians showing up outside of Asher sometime maybe in the future. Yes. Right? They would have needed Sargon then. Right. That, that's my point about how they, this intelligence services was really probably Sargon, Sennacherib. By the time Asher Banipal, he must have let it fall apart. Interesting stuff. It is very interesting stuff, and um, I do recommend, uh, you know, if you want further information, check out this book by Dubovsky. It's called Hezekiah and the Assyrian Spies. <laughs> it's a very scholarly book, but it's also very, um, very interesting. And with that, we are about to return to the 630s BC. Yes, and I could, I think Assyria is going to be a little bit quiet in the 630s as far as what we know. I'm sure a lot of this stuff that we just talked about was happening all the time, it's, but we're we're really winding it. I, do, I know there's more information on the 20s, but the 630s in, in Assyria is very sparse. But we know stuff was happening, so we're going to discuss it. And we know if the Assyrians don't tell us what is happening, it is not good for them. That's right. That's why they don't tell us yes. very much. <laughs> and we are getting closer to the end of the Neo-Syrian Empire in 612. Yes. But I think, you know who starts getting born now? The, and start coming around? They call the, the um, pre-Socratics. So that's how the world's going to sort of shift that way in a couple hundred years. But the pre-Socratics are like philosophers who pre you know, preceded. Oh, interesting. So they start to come around. They start getting born in the late 600s and start operating in the 500s. Oh, well, the 6th century BC is the, a great time for philosophy. Yeah. Yes, it is. That's why they get started. We think of it in the 300s, but anyway, we'll talk about that then, right? Yes. Excellent. Well. So I hope you have enjoyed this story of the Assyrian Empire and how it actually worked and that you now have a better picture of this thing we've been talking about for so long. Yes. Now let's tear it down. <laughs> yeah, let's rip it apart. Well, I think most people know when it is, but we still have the 630s, we have the 20s, and we have other parts of the world. So again, if anybody has any information on, you know, East Asia, India history, specifically in those, you know, decades, that's always a problem. We have big era stuff, but it's hard to like pinpoint a decade. I would appreciate it. Very good. And if you'd like to support our show, please do so on patreon.com where you can donate a sum per episode of your choice. That would be great. Yeah. Check out our Facebook page. Send me messages. And now I'm quite happy to get back to our chronological narrative that we are used to. Yes, it's been a while. So we appreciate letting us go through this little sidebar. And we're right back to the 630s next time. And 28 years of dismantling this gigantic empire into nothing amazing all right well let's do it we would like to thank our sponsors on patreon for being so great and being sponsors yes there are nine sponsors at the one dollar level thank you all and then we will give personal thanks to everyone above that level thanks to frank hick 
thanks to Brian Donoghue. And please excuse me if I pronounce your English names wrong. I'm very sorry. English is not my native language. Thanks to Sir Robert. Thanks to Chris Cork. So far, so good. You speak better English than me. Uh, well, thanks to Sir Robert and Chris Cork. I don't think I speak better English than you. Thanks to... Oh, here are some Swedish sponsors. Thanks to Ulrika. Thanks to Martin Olsson. And Roland Magnusson. Thank you. Thanks to Johan Streng, who is at a very special level, namely the Marduk, Lord God of Babylon level. So Johan, if you send a message on Patreon, we will do something special for you. We also have two sponsors on the $5 level, which we have aptly named Most Excellent Lord Sponsors. (laughs) You also have a reward if you send a message on Patreon. Those two people are Matt McGovern. You know him, don't you? Yes. Super fan. And Nicholas Barton. Thank you, guys. We also want to extend a special thanks to the Endless Not podcasts, of which you are a listener, Bernie, are you not? Yes, I definitely am. Very interesting. Check it out. It's a great podcast. Definitely is. Thank you all. This is what keeps us going. So we are most thankful. Yeah, we appreciated it. We, me and Dan go go drinking with the money right after. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not, because he lives in Sweden and I live in Pennsylvania. <laughs> one day, one day we'll do. One day tour we'll have Iraq and the Assyrian heartland. Oh, that'll be amazing! I just got a GoPro camera, so we'll be ready to go. Okay, we need much more <laughs> sponsors than that for that. <laughs> I just use my own retirement money. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. Speak to you soon, Bernie. Yes, cheers. Thanks, Dan. Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.